You're listening to That'll Preach. We have uh, another guest on our show. Uh, he's uh, somebody that uh, was actually one of my professors in seminary, and he's uh, written a lot of great books and been a very helpful theological mind. And uh, his name is Dr. Michael Allen. He is the John Dyer Trimble Professor of Systematic Theology and the Academic Dean at RTS Orlando, Forum Theological Seminary Orlando. And uh, he's going to be joining us today. Dr. Allen, thanks for being with us. I'm so glad to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, we wanted you on the show. And really, we, I mean, Paul's not here with us, but uh, I specifically was interested in talking about a book you wrote a couple of years ago, 2018, uh, called Grounded in Heaven. And uh, I, I really enjoyed the classes I took from you. I always felt like you were a very clear thinker. And uh, I had a lot of aha moments in your classes. And I think reading through Grounded in Heaven, I had some similar aha moments. And hopefully, through our conversation, people listening can experience that as well. But uh, Grounded in Heaven, the little subtitle is Recentering Christian Hope and Life on God. And uh, there's a lot of reflections in this book. It's a theological work, but it's also, I think, very pastoral in a lot of ways and, and even personal, I think. Um, but I want to start just what got you interested in writing this book? Uh, what was the story surrounding it? Yeah, two things. Uh, one thing was reading a book that infuriated me. Um, and uh, I, I interact with it. And uh, it, it's a book by a very good scholar named Richard Middleton. But he argued in a book on the new heavens and the new earth, a uh, a case about eschatology that I thought not only sidelined, but at times marginalized and uh, even mocked uh, many of the classic ways Christians, um, saints of old, even martyrs of old, those suffering of old, the way they envisioned their hope and what sustained them. And uh, I, I found that to be the only time in my entire writing career where I've I've wanted to write something simply because of a, a book that I I found so frustrating. Um, I've since had delightful interaction with him, and, and we've written for a four views on heaven book together where we're we're discussing back and forth. Um, I'm grateful for that opportunity. So that was one provocation. The other was that over the course of a year, I was reading a lot of patristic and Puritan writings on heavenly mindedness and the ascetical life, the life of self-denial, and really found them to be remarkably moving and found there to be a great integration between what I saw in a lot of early Christian thinkers and then some later Puritans who, you know, are a rather excitable bunch, the side of the Reformation. And uh, you wouldn't always assume those two groups in every which way would fit. But I, uh, I actually found they had so much in common. And in having so much in common with each other, they had so much uh, that was distinctive relative to contemporary Christianity, even contemporary Christianity and, and some major strands of the Reformed and Evangelical world. So I thought that's something I want to write about and explore. As I was reading your book, you quoted a lot of things 
and critiqued a lot of phrases that I felt like I grew up on in sort of the neo-Calvinist kind of uh, mini revival or something like that. Every square inch and thinking about even just talking about N.T. Wright and resurrection and new creation and all these kind of earthy things and heaven isn't just floating in the sky and all these types of things. Mm -hmm. And I remember when I first heard that kind of teaching, it was mind blowing. I was like, wow. Mm -hmm. It was like we were lied, not lied to, but, you know, Christianity was all about dying and becoming a spirit and floating in heaven. And this new kind of raw teaching felt revolutionary in certain respects. Mm -hmm. And it became all the rage, you know, and the Kuyperianism and all these types of things. And I felt like you had a very kind of uh, a, a very tender, but 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 guided voice of saying, I know all that too, but that is, there are good impulses, but we don't want to lose something that the patristics and, and people have been holding on to for a long time, this idea of, of uh, uh, the good version of a heavenly-minded kind of life. Um, and, I, and I was really provoked in a good way by a phrase you used, eschatological naturalism. Mm. And I'm curious to hear you elaborate on what that is and, and also where you started to see that in contemporary evangelical culture or the circles that you were in. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad this connected with some, some earlier ideas and concepts and even impressions that you'd taken in, uh, in a very parallel way, probably much of your experience was my own in terms of growing up uh, heavily influenced by the neo-Calvinist or Kuyperian uh, tradition, uh, being very grateful for it, but also over time increasingly coming to see that there's a very secularized version of it hmm. that wasn't its an original intent, but has become quite prevalent. And uh, that term, eschatological naturalism, really is the, the best description I could come up with. It's it's not to name someone as a philosophical naturalist in the theoretical sense, someone who believes in nature and nothing else or the materialist matter and nothing else, but rather uh, someone who in this very specific sense is uh, going to be a naturalist. That is someone who's going to believe that God exists and God sovereignly orchestrates history and salvation bringing his kingdom and its glory into the new heavens and the new earth. And so most of these folks are going to be Augustinian and reformed in terms of divine sovereignty, uh, Christ's kingdom, and the significance of grace with regard to salvation. But you can believe and cherish all those things and still believe that at the end of all things, Really, we are left with nature, with creation, with embodiment and the earth and human relations. And you can, we might say, uh, pay so much attention to the good gifts that you forget to tend to the giver. And uh, that's really what I'm trying to gesture at with that phrase, eschatological naturalism. The person who would believe that God is absolutely crucial until God gives you everything else, at which point God sort of exits stage right of your hope and your eschatology. And I find that we are raised in a culture that's that's going to secularize us unless we're very careful and intentional. And even then it's a battle. 
Um, and in many respects, we're we're laying down the theological tools and weapons that we might actually use to fight secularism within the church. And it, it seems to me this is one of those key junctures. This reminds me of a phrase, heavenly minded, too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. And as a kind of a critique of, of people who just want to, and it's sort of it's spoken in like a pejorative way of like, you just want to pray and read your Bible and think about God and you don't want to actually help people. And I think there's, there's kind of a left-leaning and a right-leaning version of this. The left-leaning is you just want to pray and read your Bible and you don't want to help Thoughts and prayers, right? Yeah, thoughts and prayers. You don't want yeah. to actually reform things. I think there's a more right-leaning thing where it's like, well, you don't want to take back culture. You don't want to contend mm. for the faith. You don't want to build institutions. And you can kind of feel an eye roll at times. What's your response when you hear the phrase, too heavenly-minded for any earthly good? Yeah, well, the first thing to note is it's not new. Uh, hmm. C.S. Lewis wrestles with it in the latter part of mere Christianity. So this has been around for well over a century. Sure. Uh, if if it's on the street and he feels the need to engage it apologetically almost 100 years ago, um, I guess about 80 years ago at this point. That said, um, you know, I, I do think it's obviously a, a challenge that always can be taken as a, a prompt for self-analysis. Hmm. Um, it's certainly the case that Christians can at times fail to love neighbor. And uh, that sometimes we can even use spiritual language as justification for that. And so I think it's incumbent on us when we hear someone voice that, that we always do self-examine. And we ask, more importantly, for God to examine us and reveal, as 1 Corinthians 4 would say, that which we wouldn't perceive ourselves. That said, I actually think often it's a line offered either in ignorance or bad faith. Because if you look at, at the course of history, um, almost every interesting thing that has occurred, at least in the places where the church has existed, has been brought about. Every remarkable societal change or uh, revolution in behavior for the good has been brought about by heavenly-minded people, hmm. um, where their heavenly-mindedness has been really crucial for them to persevere and persist in loving self-sacrifice for the sake of, of Christian love of neighbor, both personally and publicly, um, both individually and politically. And uh, so I, I just, I, I would be glad to go through the centuries of history with any skeptic on that front. And uh, whether it's, you know, the abolition of the slave trade, uh, whether it's the way in which we think about sexual behavior in the early church, whatever it might be, um, heavenly mindedness is absolutely crucial and interesting uh, to observe that the only people I find mocking it are remarkably privileged people. Um, heavenly mindedness marks the the spirituals of slaves in the American South in the 19th century. And heavenly mindedness marks the, the prophetic words that Isaiah and other prophets offer to exiled Israelites. Uh, I think when people are, are really facing true catastrophe, 
they need the language of of real hope, hope not merely of of improvement, of helping the helpable, but rather of resurrection and of apocalyptic intervention of something that comes from above and and is beyond our uh, strife and struggle. And heavenly mindedness is is really just what the doctor ordered. And uh, so it's not surprising that it appears in the, the most dire circumstances in the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament pages that the apostles, learning from Jesus, who says, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, other things will be added to you, um, that the apostles and, and the other writers of the New Testament are really going to accent that. And that it's crucial to early Christians who are a minority religion at best and a persecuted religion quite often. And uh, so, you know, I, I would just want to say um, we can use a ignorant or bad faith objection as the as the prompt for self-examination. And we all fall short, and many of us sometimes woefully. And so God can use that to, to lead us to repentance. That's a great gift. At the same time, we don't want to roll over and pretend that objections are stronger than they they actually are. Uh, in fact, I'd want to say, put the shoe on the other foot. Uh, are the earthly-minded capable of much earthly good in and of themselves? Uh, and I, I think that's a much more probing question. Um, you know, so I I really do think both facets of that are important, precisely because. The issue matters. Uh, we are meant for eternity, to be sure, but we are made to love our neighbor as well as to love God. And so asking the question, are we doing neighbor love? Are we at least pursuing neighbor love as we should? Are we repenting over what, what deserves repentance in that regard? Are we aiming to improve and to grow and to care for those around us the most, even our enemies? Uh, those are profoundly important questions. Not everyone agrees they are, but Christians are committed to that. And, and so if if this objection was true, it would be a absolutely fatal objection. Mm-hmm. Um, while I think wrestling with it can be productive, I just don't find it a terribly convincing objection. It is kind of like when people say, don't tell me to just pray about it. And there's a way in which that's a very insensitive thing to say, just pray about it. but. There is a question of, do you pray about it? <laughs> do it, you know? Is is our problem that we pray too much? We practice self denial too much. Mm. We're too much like the ascetics, you know. And and and, or is that really the problem that we face? And you talk about being uh, having all the blessings that we have today. Maybe that's not the ditch that we're going to fall into. Um, well, I I wouldn't want to generalize. There are subcultures all over the place, sure. and. Uh, so I want to be very careful not to somehow suggest that uh, quietism isn't an issue. No, there actually are segments of the the world where uh, a particular traditional form of dispensationalism, for instance, has really led to a quietistic sort of mindset. Now, mm. thankfully, even those earlier dispensationalists in practice are remarkably more committed to neighbor love. Uh, than you might think their their theology would suggest. Dwight Moody, for instance, is is doing all sorts of things to care for the poor of inner city Chicago, even though his eschatology suggests you really shouldn't care about mm. social concerns. Um, so, 
there there really are other segments of the the world though that are marked by quietism. There are segments that are marked by an ascetical self-denial that's rigorous and legalist and, and in a very real sense, more Gnostic than Christian. And, uh, you know, some people speak of experiences of purity culture, for instance, that lead to just not just a, a desire to put to death sexual sin, but a, a real shaming about embodiment, especially in mm-hmm. young women. Uh, I Obviously, don't know all those cases, but I, I do gather there are subcultures where that kind of rigorism can be overwhelming and an unhelpful reality. Um, so it's not as though everything boils down to one issue. Sure. That said, I do think we could say in the modern West, especially, we live in a world that is markedly incentivizing a focus on this earthly life, on consumption, and that the sort of the higher class move away from basic consumption is is simply up Maslow's hierarchy of, of needs to more intellectual, political, and social concerns about this earthly age. Uh, it's not an age that focuses our sights on transcendence or on eternity. And uh, it's certainly not an age that that tends to sort of constrain the sense of self and our will and our desire. And that's that's going to run aground of some basic Christian ideas that suggest that we're idolaters, that suggest that, uh, you know, it's not wrong that we desire, but it's wrong that we have disordered love with which we desire. And so we, we've got to go through the therapeutic and purgative process of sanctification. And, and that really does involve intentional self-denial, no way around it. Uh, people do that in our wider culture today to develop a a body that's fit or beautiful. Uh, they'll give up a meal or they'll give up time and energy to work out, to diet. They'll do that for financial gain or for, you know, moving up the corporate ladder. Um, are we willing also to call people to the process of discipline and maturation, spiritually speaking? Uh, to giving up this worldly goods for the sake of furthering our love of an eternal good that is, in fact, glorious. That's that's where I think this really challenges the secularizing tendencies of our majority culture, you might say, today. You make use of this uh, phrase, the beatific vision. Sure. Uh, can you elaborate on what that is? Yeah, so beatific simply means blessed or happy. And uh, it's picking up on the language that the Bible consistently speaks of our final hope as being with God. Um, we see that throughout Scripture, but just for the sake of time, I can I can direct attention right to the very end of Revelation there. It's describing that final picture, and it begins and ends with the language from Christ, Behold, I am coming soon. Not simply, Behold, happy days are coming soon, or Behold, world peace but the personal promise of his presence that bookends the account. God in Jesus is coming soon. And right at the heart of it, at the the, the center of this account, amid all the other beauties, is this word that the dwelling place of God is with humanity. See or behold that. That's, That's the utmost glory of this amazing kingdom of God's beloved son. And, uh, the way the Bible so often describes 
that most intimate and glorious experience of God's presence is through the, the metaphor of the spiritual sense of sight. Could use other senses. We hear God. Uh, people touched Jesus, of course. He invites Thomas and others to touch him. He embraces someone. Um, you could smell Jesus were he around you. Um, so there, there are other senses that are appropriate. The language of sight is used because sight of the face is the most intimate way of, of having awareness of someone. We know this now better than we used to because we had to wear masks for so long and we realized what it is to be incapable of seeing uh, so much communication that's lost, nonverbal communication, what what someone's trying to convey in the way in which the mannerisms through which they, they say something. Um, seeing their face matters so much. It reveals so much. And that's the metaphor that's used regularly in the Bible. Um, so much so in the Old Testament, we're told you can't behold God's face, even Moses. Uh, it will undo him. Um, we're told, however, that the glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ by Paul writing to the Corinthians. Uh, nevertheless, while the disciples saw his face and he made known the Father to them, uh, we have not seen him. We live in this time of the ascension, a time between his comings. We live by faith, not by sight, Paul will say. And we anticipate that day when he will appear, we shall see him, and we will be changed, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3. And so there's this notion that we will have this thickest, fullest, most endless experience of the presence of God. And it's described in these remarkable words as having that kind of face-to-face -face, uh, intimacy of seeing God revealed in Jesus Christ. This is really treasured by almost every early Christian, medieval, Reformation-era theologian. It's a key way the Bible seeks to keep our hope theocentric, to, to keep it focused on God at the center of things. That's helpful. I think heavenly mindless being, the hope is a person and knowing and being known by that person. And it, I think what was helpful about your book too, is there's a sense of longing there. And I guess that's the heavenly mindedness in which that is not something we will experience in its fullness, this side of eternity. Right. And that the anchor of hope through suffering is not even the end of suffering, although that's wonderful, or even like you were saying, uh, the, you know, the lack of suffering or, or the new kingdom, or all these things, but it's God himself. I think you even, you quoted the apostle Paul where his great hope was not even just the kingdom coming and all the glory of that, but seeing Christ himself. Yeah. Um, yeah. He longs. I mean, when he writes, you know, he, he longs to, to go and to be with God. It's better for his sake that he go and yeah. be with God, but it's for the sake of his neighbor. And in particular, his sister and brother, uh, that he would stay and have to wait. And ingredient in that is that waiting uh, is hard. It involves suffering. It doesn't remove it all. And in fact, I think we could say um, Christian experience in some profound ways is going to deepen some suffering um, in that, you know, we will, we will be lovesick for a God that we can't yet have in a completely satisfying way in this life. 
that deepens longings in some profound ways. Christians have found the character of the bride and song of songs through the ages to, to really address that issue. That's why you count the cost. That's why you don't awaken love before it's ready, because it's a, a serious, weighty, and challenging thing. But as you, as you come to experience the love of the bridegroom, increasingly you're going to want it more. And that's not completely satisfied in this life. So um, part of the Christian journey is this candid reality that Scripture does speak of the answer to our longings, but it also so often just prompts further longings as well, because that's part of this process of pilgrimage and repentance and of, of learning to, to trust and give up control or to give up the fiction of control. Um, in seeking to to find satisfaction in God's good time, that's powerful. The the more that you grow to love Christ, the more the incompleteness of your experience of Him creates a deeper longing for the day when that will be presented in its fullness. Um, what are some ways that we can cultivate this heavenly mind mindedness, just from your own life or things that you've seen helpful for other people, especially considering our world of instant gratification. This is a difficult thing. Yeah. <laughs> to do it is. Yeah. And there there are all sorts of realities. We might call them powers and principalities conspiring against us in all sorts of ways. Um, I'll mention just a few basic tools. Uh, all of them I've found to be powerful and helpful. All of them can be challenging uh, to practice well. Um, but I, I think all of them have a pretty direct uh, implication for helping challenge sort of secularism and commend heavenly mindedness. Uh, the first would be Sabbath, mm. uh, the willingness to one day in seven follow the Lord's design, obey his command, and entrust our, our daily and weekly cares to him, uh, believing that, you know, uh, ultimately. Uh, the battle belongs to the Lord. The harvest is in his hand and our health and strength are are his gift. So sort of holding things with a loose hand by actually resting for 24 hours out of every 168. That's a profound way of uh, sort of learning to practice heavenly mindedness. If If there's not a God and there's not a God who's going to bring care and provision then the Sabbath is a stupid thing to do. But if there is a God, a God of the covenant, like the God revealed in Jesus Christ, then the Sabbath makes all the sense in the world. And uh, Sabbath is not something that comes naturally uh, to sinful humans. But I, I think it's one of the most profound ways of God's design for, for reshaping our life in a way that fits reality uh, and, and really honors his promise. A second one uh, would be sort of analogous, the, the practice of fasting. I do think that that finding some regular rhythm to fast is absolutely essential. Jesus presumes in Matthew 6, when you fast, don't do it like them, do it this way. The assumption is, of course, you're fasting. Um, you don't need to fast 40 days and nights. You don't need to be Herculean about this. In fact, that's probably a bad idea on multiple fronts. but giving up certain earthly goods, which are good, and therefore it's a sacrifice to give them up. It's not 
it's not sort of hating on them or dissing them. It's honoring them, but honoring their relative good and and pursuing a greater good by by putting them to the side for a season. I, I think that's profoundly important. And it could be food. It could be other things that people fast from that are valid earthly goods, uh, often very useful for us. Uh, and yet sometimes it's important for us to say no for the sake of something greater. Um, third thing I'd mention is just really ingredient in those other two. Uh, there's no way around heavenly mindedness, um, no way to it without going through the practice of prayer. And I would suggest structured intentional prayer. Um, we're called to, to be ever prayerful and uh, sometimes translated be constant in prayer. You're not going to be constant or spontaneous in prayer very much if you're not intentional and structured about prayer. So I would I would strongly encourage people to think about time in a structured way, pray at certain stated scheduled times of the day, set a, an alarm on your phone if you need to. They don't have to be long, but but morning, noon, and night, pray the hours. Just uh, allow a regular practice to bring to mind the fact that God is who you're ultimately made for and who you supremely depend on. Um, so I would I would encourage praying the hours as one structure that helps with intentional prayer. A second structure is we don't tend to know what to pray or how to pray. Mm -hmm. uh, we pray out of our immediate felt needs yeah. or delights. And so I'd encourage people to pray scripture in particular, pray the Lord's prayer and pray the Psalms. And uh, the Lord's prayer is obviously the, the brief version. The Psalter is the longer 150 prayer deep version. And uh, make it a practice of, of reading through a psalm and pausing to pray lines as it, it gives you a, a vantage point on your day and your, your experience or that of those around you. Um, that helps us to start to see more of heaven, to long after better things, to repent about things that we wouldn't have noticed before, to give thanks for ways God is active that the text of scripture is alerting us to that we might otherwise forget. Um, I've been a Christian as long as I can remember and grew up in a prayerful home. And my family's very prayerful in lots of ways. I still find every day that if I'm not praying through the Psalms, it's amazing uh, just how limited my own assumptions are and, and yet how helpful uh, exponentially helpful working through several Psalms is to opening up my eyes to all the things that I should say before God. Um, and so I'd encourage people to think about intentional prayer that that is structured in terms of both time in the day and use of, of scriptures to pray through, in particular, the Psalms and the Lord's Prayer. I remember in your personal sanctification class, you had us pray the Lord's prayer and you made a, you really dug deep into the Lord's prayer. And I remember doing that. I remember thinking how the Lord's prayer is a way of ordering our affections and ordering our priorities. I think about mm -hmm. in James when it says you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend on your passions mm -hmm. and that the Lord's prayer is a way of reforming your passions to ask for the things that God wants to give, which are ultimately better for you anyways. And just even thinking about prayer itself as formation, not just as a conduit to have things happen. Mm -hmm. 
is a is a helpful way to think about it. Um, I, I'm curious about. I have friends who have come from charismatic circles, um, and uh, my my wife grew up in like a charismatic church, and 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 the personal experience of God that that experiential life is very rich in that tradition, and maybe in some circumstances it's a little overwrought. You know, people mm. almost having an overrealized eschatology of how much of God you can have now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think there's sort of a stereotype about reformed guys, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I am a reformed guy and where the experiential is dismissed, uh, because of caricatures that are seen. Mm-hmm. What do you think would be a healthy kind of reformed experiential life? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think there's probably two things we ought to say. One is obviously scripture describes a lot of varied experience spiritually and liturgically. And one of the things we ought to strive for and repent forward about is over time, not every day, certainly not in every service, but over time, we want to increasingly have our spiritual experience map the entirety, the, the the full breadth and the proportions of what's modeled there in Scripture. Um, and so if, if we're never marked by the kind of exuberant joy or by the, the, the kind of sorrow, um, by the varied experiences that are described in Scripture, that ought to really raise questions, and that ought to be a matter of concern and prayerful repentance asking that God would would help us experience that breadth and that wholeness better. Um, and so we need to we need to pay attention to the range or breadth of experience. Um, and things like the Psalms are so helpful in giving you what Calvin calls an anatomy of of the soul, of all the various facets of life. And uh, it's so candid, it's so diverse, it's so honest. Uh, it helps you be able to to see how every aspect of life really can be brought before God. Hmm. Um, that's the first thing. The second thing, though, is I do think we need to acknowledge also how very terrible almost all of us are almost all of the time at at reading our own experience. Um, not that we can't register exuberance or fear or whatever but that parsing its meaning and its value is something that is so very dicey, particularly in the moment. Uh, Normally, uh, without the benefit of of time lapse, normally without the benefit of of wise others who know us well, uh, normally without just the remarkable grace of the Holy Spirit, making sense of what's going on and discerning that is remarkably tough. And oftentimes our reads of when we're having a high experience or a low one are things that are so effervescent and temporary, and they don't actually prove to be what we think even a week later. And uh, so I do think we need to just have a a whole lot of humility um, and docility, teachableness with regard to what we take to be 
good or bad spiritual experiences. Um, you know, you can think about worship, about prayer, about the Christian life as pedagogy, teaching. And in most cases, uh, significant life-changing pedagogy or teaching is not something you're you're necessarily completely self-conscious of in the moment in which it's occurring. It, it tends to be that you've got to you know, get a little distance and then you're able to see it. Um, I think we just need to keep that in mind and appreciate that and not jump either to celebrating and baptizing something as the be-all and end-all or suggesting that in every respect something is absolutely improper or something. Uh, I, I think we need to make sure and be quite humble and restrained and not go beyond what we're actually able to know. Um, when you yeah, talk so about, breadth and humility would be two different concerns. When you talk about the breadth of the experience, I, I think about like Psalm 88, which is commonly mm -hmm. people talk about as, as sort of the dark night of the soul. And, mm -hmm. and I've read a little bit about that idea of when believers are in a time of, of perceived kind of darkness, feels like God is absent, not because of sin on their part, but it just seems to be in God's providence, a time of deep mm -hmm. distress. How does heavenly mindedness and, and this kind of hope grounded in God, how does that speak to those times of spiritual dryness of yeah. the dark valley that people have gone through? Yeah, well, and I, I think we ought to say, first of all, those those times are more typical than we'd ever like to admit because we don't tend to bring them sure. up. Uh, and there's reasons we don't tend to bring them up. They, they tend not to be celebrated or talked about uh, by those we herald. Um, we tend not to sing about them. So many times uh, songs are going to be restricted to the sort of major, not the minor. Uh, and, and so they're going to be triumphant and celebratory. And we're not going to we're not going to sing the laments. And uh, that sets expectations of what a normal Christian life is like and people who suffer depression, people who suffer acute spiritual crises, they learn mighty quickly uh, from unstated cues that you don't talk about certain things. And uh, so I, I think we'd be pretty shocked to see how frequently that kind of issue that you name really is prevalent even among uh, Christians and churches that we attend. Um, I think heavenly mindedness is so important uh, precisely because when you're in a, at an acute or crisis stage of depression or some other malady, your world shrinks. Hmm. And it's, it's so hard to really expand your gaze and to think beyond kind of the immediate pain. It's persistent. Um, and so something that's going to puncture that, something that's going to draw your attention up, is absolutely crucial. Um, and that's true for a range of things. I mean, I can say personally from experience, uh, in terms of, of chronic illness, that can be remarkably important, where uh, the experience of persistent chronic pain uh, can so shrink your gaze um, that that you need something that, that is going to actually um, overwhelm and, and sort of draw upward your your mentality 
and uh, heavenly-minded prayer, meditation on scripture, um, those, those can be just what the doctor ordered in that regard. Um, in similar fashion for, for folks battling sort of spiritual crises or persistent clinical depression, um, it can also be pertinent as well. Not to say it's the silver bullet that solves all issues and maladies, mind you. Um, and there are lots of medical and psychological issues where you need professional care mm-hmm. complementing it in all sorts of ways. Um, but but it is definitely one key spiritual practice uh, that we need to center. Yeah. Do you think this has anything to do with, it seems like deconstruction and especially among millennials, it, it, it seems to be a trend more and more. And I wonder if that's due to, a, a, I wonder if heavenly mindedness might have some relation to that or a lack of heavenly mindedness. I guess there's different reasons mm-hmm. for that. I don't know. It's just when you're talking mm-hmm. about it, it, got me thinking about how those times of spiritual crisis can be debilitating a lot of ways. And sometimes you hear mm-hmm. people's stories and you're like, yeah, I kind of get why you felt that way or, or sure. why yeah. abandoning the faith could be plausible for you. Um, right. Does heavenly mindedness provide any resources with that? Um, you know, I, just think about Augustine and the way he talks about real challenges in his book, The City of God. And he wants to, with real sobriety and candor, describe the fact that oftentimes our experience of today, individually and corporately, it can stink. Yeah. And that there's there's no value in in dumbing that down or toning that down. Um, we as Christians ought to actually be capable of describing the the hurt uh, and the disappointment uh, as being catastrophic, not just problematic, and uh, being capable of doing so better than others because we have the the ultimate register or standard by which we measure. Um, we see how far things fall short of the glory of God, um, and so yeah, I, I, I do think there. Are, all sorts of occasions where there's real tragic disappointment, uh, there's brutal hurt, um, and we don't want to tone down the severity of that. At the same time, Augustine will want to say, while that's true today, today isn't the end of the story. And that's the real imaginative Mm -hmm. leap of faith right there, to believe that there is a tomorrow, and tomorrow doesn't have to be faded by the intractability of today's problems. And uh, that's where uh, I do think, you know, there, there's some big phrases we could use. There's, there's a reigning overrealized eschatology uh, where a lot of people expect as soon as they become Christian or as soon as enough people become Christian or some institutions become, you know, whatever it may be, somehow we usher in the golden age of perfection and there's no disappointment or hurt. Um, there's just an over-exuberant sense, a, a Pollyannish sense that we're somehow going to have that kind of idyllic utopia in this world. And Christ doesn't promise that at all. Um, and so that's that's one thing that sets people up to experience disappointment as catastrophe. Hmm. Um, the second thing, I, I, I think is if if people see Christians mainly concerned with making today better, 
and not also concerned with fostering faith in God intervening tomorrow, then when today doesn't work out, they'll think the whole show is over. And uh, so if, if Christianity really is just about improving society or improving your sense of self or improving your behavior modification controls, then, you know, when you fail or when society really doesn't go the way you thought and you'd, you'd work toward, um, you may just think the whole Christian thing needs to be thrown out. And uh, that's where the idea of the eternal and the heavenly and divine intervention that goes beyond, you know, behavior modification uh, is so crucial. And that's where we're talking about not casting aside concern for, you know, repenting of my sin and seeking to love my neighbor and doing so personally and publicly, but rather making sure I keep priorities in line. Uh, that I seek first God and his kingdom uh, before I seek anything else, that I'm mindful of my need for the covenant promise that he will be my God and I'm his His people um, before I'm mindful of other things like daily bread. Um, the Lord's Prayer you mentioned is a, a challenging model. We're led to pray for daily bread and for protection, uh, but we start with hallowing God's name. And naming him as father and talking about his, not our kingdom. And, and getting those priorities in step is a humbling reality that I think sets expectations where we can weather disappointment and profound pain without it requiring the utter deconstruction of faith. But if you don't have those priorities, if you don't have the heavenly minded hope, if everything is just about fixing today, then you're set up where if today goes that badly, if the hurt is that raw, it may seem the whole thing is completely overturned. And, you know, I, I can't say this is the one factor that leads to that, of course, but it, it sure does seem that it, it's a contributing issue. In the years since you've written this book, talk, you talked a little bit about COVID, and but just all kinds of the political polarization, all these types of things. What are some reflections you've had since writing the book, considering all of the events that have happened in mm -hmm. recent history? Yeah, it's been interesting because as uh, soon as it was published, I started getting letters from people who read it and observed sort of applications of it to areas of life, not all of which I'd thought about or thought about at much mm -hmm. length. And then, of course, as you mentioned, other things happen like a global pandemic. Um, and uh, that is something, of course, I, I wasn't remotely thinking about. Um, I do certainly think that, um, you know, the experience of a, a global pandemic where we learn how remarkably small our control is, whether that's medicinal control or that's political control and sort of managing social trust, um, whatever layer we're thinking about, uh, the, the, the pandemic season of these last years has shown how intractable our problems are. And we can still do better or worse. So it's not as though debating how to navigate things is beside the point. I don't, I don't mean to suggest that at all. Uh, simply that there's, there's no way to navigate, no way to manage 
such that we actually get beyond the, the, the problems. And that, that really makes me identify with the position of, you know, folks uh, in the early fifth century when suddenly Rome is being challenged and, and Christians are being blamed. And Augustine's having to ask, uh, you know, how can we respond to those questions? How can we address the ongoing suffering of this world that, that just seems so profound? Um, how can we have a, a Christian way of, of addressing these things? And he writes The City of God. And so I've, uh, I've very much found my attention drawn there in the last years. Um, I've very much been struck by how Augustine has, for me, been a great teacher in the last three or four years regarding the intractability of suffering as an individual in a society, um, the remarkable calling to be a servant, even a sacrificial servant, uh, as a citizen, or even as somebody, if you, you come like a few do, to have power, uh, office, uh, in your exercise of that office, um, and of of how the Christian way of approaching those political and public issues, um, particularly when they seem so charged and polarized and uh, marked by disappointment and anger and contempt and friction, how the Christian way of approaching it is so very different. Um, Because unlike others, uh, we aren't nihilists. We are marked by happiness and hope. And uh, that gives us just a very different way of approaching uh, remarkable seasons of uncertainty, remarkable situations of discord, uh, remarkable experiences of just baffling, bumfuzzling behavior that seems irrational, um, all sorts of things that can that can seem so intractable and overwhelming. And uh, again and again and again, it just seems to me that the way that Augustine can point us to reminders in scripture of God's constant promise to be coming from heaven to earth to make a way, to give grace, to provide uh, for his kingdom, his church, his city. Um, Those are absolutely life-giving. And so that's where I want to put my attention. That's where I want to focus my mind as I try to navigate uniquely challenging social, political, cultural, um, churchly situations that can be equally uh, painful and intractable. I think uh, you've really been helpful in reestablishing the good of the heavenly mindedness. Um, and then earlier you did say that there is a lot of uh, heavenly mindedness actually can spur on great action. You talked mm-hmm. maybe on a broader level, but y- you have a phrase that you wrote where future blessings prompt present behavior, or at least they inform that. How does this heavenly mindedness push us toward action with regard to sanctification and growth and holiness now? Because there you could sort of have a caricature of saying, heavenly mindedness, just, you know, forget about what you're doing now. Present it could pursuit. easily be taken as though somehow eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow, sure. you know, we die. Um I think uh, it's remarkable how often eschatology shapes ethics, Hmm. and in particular, spiritual mindedness shapes sanctification. And uh, what we see again and again in the New Testament is this idea that 
Paul, the author to the Hebrews, Jesus himself, they don't simply want to tell you the wise, the loving, the obedient thing to do. They also want to show you why that makes sense, why that's compelling, and why you ought to be motivated to that end. And again and again, it's knowing that your future is secure by faith in God's promise that frees and motivates you to love your neighbor, even to love your enemy, often to do so at great cost. Love always involves sacrifice or cost. You don't love on the cheap. It's just woven into the definition. And so, you know, one example, one example, one of the most unique things about Christians is I don't think we're called to be pacifists in the pure sense, but we are called to the equally trying task of loving our enemy. And there's no way around. That's remarkably costly and challenging. That's not natural. In Romans 12, picking up on what Jesus had said in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Paul says, you know, bless those who persecute you. And he's writing this to Romans in the time of Nero, who's lighting the the streets at night with the corpses of Christians on poles. Persecution is not a metaphor. Hmm. Uh, Bless those who persecute you and uh, do not avenge yourselves, he says a couple verses later. Well, if you're being mistreated, there is a natural human instinct to hit back. It's native um, that if someone attacks you, you strike back. How is it that you don't further escalate the cycle of violence and contempt? Someone's got to be willing to exercise self-restraint. Well, how can you manage to do that? That seems so remarkably non-intuitive. And there's a promise there in Romans 12. For the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. In other words, if you see that God pledges to make things right, God pledges to judge, God pledges to vindicate the righteous and to judge the unrighteous. Therefore, I don't need to play vigilante. I don't need to go out and do whatever I got to do to make sure they get what's coming to them. I am freed. I am freed for patience. I am freed for love. I am freed even to bless them in the meanwhile. Um, It's fascinating. The the theologian Miroslav Volf, studying uh, reconciliation efforts in former Yugoslavia in the late 90s after an ethnic war of some years, um, he asked Christians there, um, you know, about how they would avoid going and wanting to harm those who had harmed them or their loved ones during this, uh, this remarkable season of strife. And it's interesting. He found that it's those who believed in the doctrine of divine judgment and hell who were able to live peaceably now. Hmm. Now, there are a lot of religious studies professors who'd say just the opposite. If you believe in a doctrine of hell and a single God who condemns certain people, uh, you're going to be judgmental. You're going to lord it over others. You're going to try and bring that judgment into this world. And and what we find actually empirically uh, and what we find scripturally in the New Testament is it's just the opposite. Knowing that God will judge all things frees me from playing God and believing I have to do so. And, And that's been central to Christians being capable of restraining 
that itch to avenge themselves and to escalate violence and to harm rather than bless their enemy. And that's been pivotal to one of the greatest outreaches and witnesses to God's love that the church has had through the ages and around the globe. This notion that we can actually bless those uh, who who commit such harm against us. I mean, I think just a few years ago, when there was a horrific shooting at uh, Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and the kind of prayerful response from that congregation, uh, surely you would have instincts leading them or people in a situation like that to, to want to get even, uh, to want to get back. Uh, and yet, clearly, there's a, a, a spiritual environment there that doesn't simplify it, I trust, but that enables them to seek to bless those who've harmed them. Uh, and that is just absolutely baffling to the wider world. But it it sure seems like Jesus. Hmm. And again and again and again in Scripture, it's that faith-focused on a future promise of God that frees us from worry and anxiety and frees us for loving self-sacrifice, uh, even for the sake of our enemy. And, and that brings about revolutionary radical change in the world. That's, that's how things get done for the good. And uh, so I think we need to study the many promises where God says he's going to show up and provide so that we can trust each of them. They're all yes in Christ, but they're varied and diverse, and they apply across all the segments of our lives. And if we increasingly know how to trustingly put our hope in there and be mindful of that, that'll free us of worry. That'll free us of anxiety. That'll free us of fear. That'll free us for looking around us, observing who's in need, being mindful of how we can be a blessing and a help. Um, That'll free us for love. Remember something you said in your class was about how we can be free to be creatures. I think you said this, mm-hmm. but that, that that was profound for me where the true freedom of a human is to live as the dependent creature that he is, the limited dependent creature that 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 lives and breathes and has his being in God himself. Um, and those are some powerful words. I, I just want to ask one. You know, fi- final question. Uh, this has been so stimulating. Uh, in what ways can pastors uh, be heavenly minded in their preaching and in their pastoral care and counseling of their congregants? Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, and I'm glad you asked it in the broad way you did. There are certain things we can do in preaching. There are also certain other things we can model and minister. So, for instance... I would actually suggest one thing we could do is think about how we model prayer um, in a worship service, especially, but in other smaller settings as well. Um, Are we modeling a a, a prayerfulness that covers the range of things the Bible says we ought to pray about, but also prioritizes what the Bible highlights, especially God and our desire to be right and be with God? that's something the balance of prayers across a service can really over time instill in people a sense of all the sorts of prayer we ought to be having as well as what what's ultimate what's prioritized and prioritizing the the godwardly focused prayer that's not simply satisfied to to care about the matters of the day 
Um, I think that's a great pastoral gift. I also think uh, in so many ways when we preach in our sermons, we do need to be mindful of um, what people are struggling with, what the most likely struggles are in our congregation. People in many communities, I'm in a city church, so you've got a diverse group. The struggles aren't all the same. But there are some preponderant ones. In some other communities, they might be a bit more homogenous, but human experience still varies from season to season. Um, we live in a, a very presentist sort of age that can strike people in different ways. The tyranny of the urgent, uh, the need to feel we have to keep up and so forth. Um, pointing people backward to the historic works of God and calling people forward to place their hope in something yet to come. Uh, those are going to be crucial pastoral moves and sermons and knowing how and when to execute them in a way that really, really scratches the itch of whatever the struggle at hand might be, whether it's anxiety about one's children or one's career or about finding a, a partner or spouse, um, whether it's a sense of control and needing to give up that sense of control and to, to have that freedom to be a creature, um, knowing how to, to draw people's attention backward to the great works of God that frame that, but also to call them forward to the promises of God, to heaven's uh, fuller coming, and uh, the way in which that can really sustain and motivate change in the here and now. Those are crucial pastoral sort of moves in, in effective preaching. And I'll just say right now we're recording this in the season of Advent. This is a great season for that. Advent historically is not about getting back in the headspace of Jews before Jesus came and, and what they would have been waiting for. It's rather historically been about looking forward predominantly to the second coming, four weeks of considering the, the return of Christ, the final judgment, heaven and hell. and and. There's a, a heavenly-mindedness ingredient in that, this idea that we really do need to, to practice in the season of anticipation uh, the idea that, that we can't fix ourselves, we can't fix our society. Uh, we'll give it our best crack. We're going we're gonna to work at it repentantly uh, by God's grace, and we're going to try and love as well as we can. But at the end of the day, we need God to return in glory to set things right, to, to make all things new, to finish his good work uh, started in the, the first coming of Christ. So Advent is a, a remarkable time just to fix our, our eyes on that, that second coming from the heavens. That was great. That's a great note to end on. Thank you, Dr. Allen, for joining us. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to uh, Grounded in Heaven so you can buy it and check it out. I think you'll really benefit from it. And I uh, appreciate you coming on. This was really helpful. And I hope uh, everyone listening was helped by it. Make sure you like uh, this and you review it. Give it some good stars. Share it with your friends. And I think it would be a really helpful thing to listen to over the Advent season as we think about the second coming of Christ and seeing him face to face. 